Welcome to Theology on Tape, portable Catholic theology for catechists or Catholics who want to dig deeper. My name is Elizabeth, and I'm here with Shane. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Me? Yeah, um, see, I, I added the how are you. <laughs> that's my new thing. That's a fill in the blank for listeners to, to say. Oh, no, no, I'm asking you. How are you? I'm doing okay. We haven't been talking before this. <laughs> you just walked in. So we have an episode here about creation, mm, right? Well, it's... The beginning, Genesis. Yeah, Genesis, Adam and Eve. I really want to kind of focus in on that story. Uh, so, yep, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of the Garden of Eden, the story of the fall. Yeah, that's, that's what we'll be getting into today. As we do, we like to start these talks with prayers, mm-hmm. opening prayers. So today we have one to Blessed Virgin Mary. The prayer is called Hail Star of the Ocean. Mm. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail, O Star of the Ocean, God's own mother blessed, ever sinless virgin, gate of heavenly rest. Taking that sweet ave, which from Gabriel came, peace confirm within us, changing Eve's name. Break the sinner's fetters, make our blindness day, chase all evils from us, for all blessings pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that prayer is relevant to our discussion today. You notice the line, taking that sweet Ave, which from Gabriel came, the Ave, the first words of the Hail Mary, which Gabriel said, so Ave in Latin means hail, Ave Maria, so the Latin church understood that Ave, which Gabriel spoke to Mary, is Mary is the reversal of Eve. Eve in Latin is E-V-A, the opposite of A-V-E. So they saw in Mary, it is a kind of wordplay, right? That Ave is the reversal of Eva because Mary is the reversal or the undoing of Eve. So where, where Eve falls... Mary recovers. She's the new Eve. She's the new Eve, yeah. So to Adam and Eve, where do you want to begin with the beginning? Well, of course, the whole story in Genesis, there are two creation stories, really. Genesis chapter 1 is the story of the six-day creation. On the first day, God creates the light. On the second day, he creates the sky, etc., etc. On the sixth day, he God says, let us make man in our image. And he creates them male and female, etc. And it goes on to the Sabbath. But then in chapter 2, the whole story kind of starts over. And creation is told again, but from a different perspective. From a more intimate perspective. Where it talks about God has fashioned Adam out of the earth. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So we have two different stories going on here, but they're both both telling us something important about who we are, what it means to be a human being, and yeah, something about our something important about our origins. They both feature Adam and Eve, but the second one is more personal. Yeah, because that first in, in, again in Genesis chapter one, it's just oh, let us make man in our image, and he created them male and female. But in chapter one, they're never they're never named, they're never they never speak. 
yeah, they're not really characters in chapter one. It's just, oh, God makes the animals and then he makes human beings. But what's important, what we want to borrow from chapter one before we jump to chapter two, which is the more detailed Adam and Eve story proper, is that in Genesis chapter one is where we get this line where it says, let us make man in our image. So human beings are made in the image of God. What do you suppose people take that to mean? A reflection of what God is. So Mm -hmm. maybe a physical reflection. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's how most people tend to take it. They think like, oh, God looks like us. Of course, as we've talked about in some of these past episodes, God is not a physical being. So we don't we don't physically resemble God. We're made in the image of God with respect to our soul. We are intellectual beings. We are and that doesn't mean <laughs> that we're all super smart. Uh, we have varying degrees of intelligence, but we are rational creatures. We are persons. And that is the way in which we image God is in our personhood. And so the image of God is what gives us dignity. And what's important about this idea of personhood, something that we have intrinsically by virtue of being what we are, is that it's not about how much we actualize that. Like it doesn't mean that smarter people are have more dignity. Mm-hmm. It means that we are all made in this image. So our dignity is based in our nature, not in our performance. And we can't lose that due to illness or accidents, right? Someone who loses the ability to walk doesn't lose their human dignity. They're still a human being. So that image of God is still there. Even people who have like severe brain injuries and they lose some of their like mental capacity, they still don't lose that intrinsic dignity because they are still a human being. Even if the image we could say is maybe obscured, Mm -hmm. it's obscured in all of us, but it's still there. And that's why we have to value and treat each individual person with this holistic dignity and not base it on how much they can actualize their potential. It's about their nature. And that, for instance, is why, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this probably in in a future conversation, but that's why, for instance, the Catholic Church considers the human being to be a full person with human dignity from the moment of conception because it is a human being. It doesn't matter if it doesn't yet have self-awareness. It doesn't matter if it doesn't yet have certain motor functions or skills or whatever. It is a human being. And by virtue of that, it is made in the image of God. It's made with this potential. Because if you want to undo that and say that really our dignity is based on our health and our well-being, well, then that gets you to the other end of the spectrum where then, well, people who are sick or people who are injured, well, they're not really, they're not really persons anymore. And so we don't owe them the same amount. And that's where the church will say, absolutely not. Human beings are in the image of God, and there's nothing that we can do to take that away. Okay, so I'll read a passage from chapter 2 to get us going. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, yeah. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made grow every tree that was delightful to look at and good for food. 
with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so right there we've got the, the premise of what's going on. God has made a man out of the ground and he has placed this man in a garden, a garden in Eden. So Eden is like this territory and God plants a garden within Eden and he puts the man there. And there at the center of the garden are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a lot to be said about those two trees. Obviously, if you know the story, everything kind of centers around that. So we'll, I think we'll get back to maybe what those trees represent, but we can continue to lay out the, the basics of the story. We continue on with verse 15. The Lord God then took the man and settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. The Lord God gave the man this order. You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you shall not eat. When you eat from it, you shall die. So what do those trees represent? Well, one of them is a tree that gives eternal life. So if you eat of it, you can live forever. So this is a tree of obedience, right? God gives this, it's a gift to Adam. It's a gift of immortality. This is important because it's not something that Adam possesses by nature. He still needs, we, we could call this a kind of grace, mm -hmm. right? So God has to give him this grace, even though he's been created in this wonderful environment, God still has an extra gift for him. This gift of the tree of life, this gift of eternal life. But it's conditioned, his access to the tree of life is conditioned upon his obedience. So he's allowed to eat from the tree of life so long he's, as he doesn't eat from the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. So I take this to be two contrasting ways of how Adam can decide to live his life. He can live his life in faith, in trust, in obedience, to follow God's path for him, to follow God's instructions, or he can take the fruit from the tree of knowledge and that plucking of the fruit, that reaching out and grasping and taking to himself this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is his saying, I know what is best for myself. I can determine what is right and wrong. I determine for myself what is good and what is evil. I take that into my own hands. So here, right off the bat, we are given this alternative to trust and to obey or to take things into our own hands and say, I know best. I can, I can do this on my own. And this is a, a perfect illustration of the choices that we all face because God's commandments as I've said before, are not arbitrary. God knows what Adam should do, how he should live, because he made Adam. Mm -hmm. So his instructions to Adam are for his own good, for his welfare. So if Adam thinks that he knows better than his creator, and he wants to fashion himself and become his own God, that is the root of all sin. 
is when we take things into our own hands and we take the good gifts that God gives to us and we distort them. We say, oh, I can do this my own way. That's where sin begins. We're creating our own moral system. Yeah, exactly. Continuing on from verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suited to him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each living creature was then its name. The man gave names to all the tame animals, all the birds of the air, and all the wild animals, but none proved to be helper suited to the man. This is meant, I think, by the author to be a little bit humorous. God realizes the man should not be alone. So he says, oh, I'll, I'll make a companion. I'll uh-huh. make someone to, to be a helper, a companion to, to this man. And so the, God then parades in front of Adam all of these different animals. <laughs> and he says there was no suitable helper found for him, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, he, it's, it doesn't work. So that's why I think it's, it's a bit of comedy there that uh, among all the animals... Yeah, they're kind of like failed attempts at uh, finding a good partner for Adam. None of them will do. Okay. Continuing on to verse 21. So the Lord God cast deep sleep on the man, and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then put the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman. Then he brought her to the man. The man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man, this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. The man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. Yeah, this is is a, a really beautiful part of the story that showing this, this union, right? This union of of Adam and Eve and the complementarity of men and women and that we are designed, we are created for community. We are created for love. And that's something that is represented here by the fact that, as God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. So we are not, as human beings, we, we cannot live in isolation. We cannot live outside of family. And that's one of the, I think, really interesting things about human beings is that we are obviously remarkable creatures compared to all the other animals, right? Like nobody else on the planet is doing anything like what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But how are we so different? Because if you take a human being and raise it in isolation without the nurturing care of family and education and language and all of the stuff that we learn from being in society, we're not any different than the other animals. And, and tragically, we see this illustrated with, with kids that are raised in those kind of feral situations where a human being can very easily be little more than an animal. But we have a remarkable capacity for more that's only actualized because we live in society because we live in community, we live in family. Mm -hmm. So we are really only who we are. And that image of God is fully actualized because we live like this, we live in family. 
And so the marriage relationship is, of course, at the root of that. So that's why we see it right here as the foundation of the family, the foundation of society. It all begins with marriage. And that's why marriage is so important, because everything in human society literally flows from that relationship. Yeah, that union of, of man and woman and husband and wife, it's a way to practice the lowercase faith, hope, and love so that you can probably yeah. cultivate it for the uppercase faith, <laughs> hope, oh, and love. I, I never thought of it that way, but that's right. That's true. Yeah, exactly. So marriage is this kind of testing ground of virtue. As we've said, it's a, it's a path to holiness. And it's also, we see here, something of its kind of sacramentality. The, the two, as you said, become one body, which is, of course, a foreshadowing of the relationship between Christ and the church. He becomes one body with us. And so we are united with him. And the marriage relationship kind of models that. And of course, the fruitfulness of marriage is a further sign of, of, of God's plan for this union, which is so special and unique. And the last thing I'll say about this section before we move on to chapter three is that it says the man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. What's going on there? But precisely, I think this idea that because they are living in open and honest love and community, they're not yet turned inward. They're not looking down and, and becoming anxious about their own selves because they're just living wholly for the other. They haven't yet developed that sense of self-consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, which, which breeds shame and anxiety and so forth. So this state of innocence is described as a state of almost carelessness, right? Because they are free, because they're not self-concerned. And that's, yeah, I think that's a very important point. And it's something that is lost, as we'll see. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the snake was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He asked the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the snake, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it or else you will die. Yeah, so right there, this is such an interesting insight. So the serpent obviously is a figure of the devil, the tempter. And what's the what's his first strategy? Is he he asks the woman, he says, "Did God really tell you that you can't eat from any of the trees?" Which of course is not true. He's overstated God's claim. And that is a very common tactic of the devil is to to make us think that God's commandments are more outlandish than they are right mm -hmm. it's like oh how you could never possibly look god is telling you not to eat from any of the trees that's totally unrealistic you could never live your life there. you have to eat but he has mischaracterized god's law in order to make you think that it's unreasonable but of course it is perfectly reasonable because it's the law of the creator but he wants to subvert that so immediately the first words are a lie and that's what Christ says, right? That the devil is a liar and he, he lies from the beginning and he's the father of lies. Continuing on to verse four. But the snake said to the woman, 
you certainly will not die. God knows well that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. All right, so starting from the top, the serpent, after his first lie doesn't work, Eve says, no, actually, we can eat of any of the trees, just not this tree. So then the devil tells another lie. He says, you will not surely die. God wasn't telling you the truth. God is preventing you from doing this because he doesn't want you to enjoy it. Because this is actually something that will make your life better. And God doesn't want you to have it. And that is, again, the most common tactic of the devil to confuse us, to make us think that sin is something that is going to be good for us. And that when we, when we avoid it, we're avoiding something that will bring us happiness. And that's not true. So we have to be able to see through those lies. But it's just interesting to me how the story lays that out so plainly, these tactics of the devil to misrepresent God's law or to then say that it's prohibiting something that's actually good for you. That's that's the strategy. That's what he does. Also, um, though, like the part about you will you will be on the same level of God. Yeah, and that's important, is that sin appeals to our pride. And that ultimately, Aquinas says, is the beginning point of all sin, is pride. Pride is where sin starts. Because it's us saying, yeah, I can be like God. Which is exactly what we were saying before. It's us taking into our own hands that we can determine what is right and wrong. We can determine the course of our lives. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is contrasting uh, sort of light and darkness. And he's saying, you know, you can't serve both God and Jesus says, right? You cannot serve both God and mammon. Paul, mammon, by the way, is a, means money. money. Paul is doing something similar in 1 Corinthians. He's giving all these alternatives. But he, the phrase he uses, he says, what does Christ have to do with Belial? And I had always heard that. And it's like, oh, Belial, it's the name of some god or some demon or something. And just today I looked it up. And Belial means has no master. So that is the promise of sin. And that really kind of is sin itself is this idea of you will have no master. You will be your own god. You will determine for yourself who you are, what you want to be, what you'll do. And I think the, the world that we live in is exactly the fruit of that kind of thinking of I can be whatever I want to be and I can do whatever I want to do. And every kind of evil flows out of that because we're making ourselves into gods and it all begins with pride. But as we see, when they take this fruit, they don't experience joy. They don't experience happiness. They immediately feel anxiety. That's what pride brings. 
because they lift themselves up. They think I can be like God. And suddenly, rather than looking at each other in love, they start looking at themselves and they feel shame. It's a beautiful illustration of how sin breaks relationships. So that rather than living for the other, I began living for myself. And when I do that, I lose all sense of meaning. And I lose sense, my sense of purpose and drive. And it creates anxiety. So verse 8 of chapter 3. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat? The man replied, The woman whom you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, so I ate it. The Lord God then asked the woman, What is this you have done? The woman answered, The snake tricked me, so I ate it. Again, we continue to get a beautiful diagnosis of kind of the the pattern of sin and how it unfolds. It begins with pride and this kind of exaltation of the self. I can do whatever I want. And that creates anxiety. And then it creates fear because now things are scarce. Now, because I'm worried about myself, well, now I have to go out there and I have to do things to protect myself. So when God comes, they run in fear. They hide. Now they have this sense of danger because they're worried about themselves. So they're not living freely and carelessly as they were before. Now they have to live in self-protection. So their sin, that pride created anxiety, uh, creates fear, self-preservation, that instinct. And then that turns, that sense of fear then turns into blame. And these, finally, the, the, the fruit of all of this is this broken relationship so that when God asks the man, what's going on? What did you do? He says, well, the, the woman that you gave me, she, she gave me that fruit. And so I ate it. He blames God and the woman. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So he blames God. He blames his wife. And then so God turns to the woman. And of course, she blames the serpent, which is also blaming both, right? Because God also created the serpent. Mm. So right there, that relationship which is meant to be the core and central relationship, this love and human community is broken by sin. And that's what sin always does. Sin breaks our relationship with others and it breaks our relationship with God. And that's what they experience here. Continuing on to verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all the animals, tame or wild. On your belly you shall crawl, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. They will strike at your head, while you strike at their heel. This curse that God gives to the serpent, the devil, right, is what's really important. Because in it, he gives a prophecy. 
a prediction. So now Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. They have committed a mortal sin. Which, by the way, let me say this parenthetically, for people who are always out there saying like, oh, mortal sin, that's stuff like murder. The sin that begins all of this is the most simple act of disobedience. It's just eating from a tree that God said not to eat from. That's it. Because the sin, and what's the sin? It's pride. So pride is a mortal sin. <laughs> and people need to get that picture that mortal sins, sins that risk your eternal life, are not just crimes that will send you to prison. Like, it's the condition of our heart. Of the seven deadly sins that we talk about, the first one is pride. So we have to take that very seriously. So because Adam and Eve fall into this sin, God turns to the devil and gives this prophecy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This has been taken to be a kind of foreshadowing of the oppositional relationship between the devil and Mary. Mary is kind of the devil's opposite because where the devil raises himself up and is cast down by his pride, Mary's most notable characteristic is her humility. She lowers herself and because she lowers herself, God raises her up to the highest place. To see that, read Luke chapter 1 in the Magnificat. That's what she says, that the Lord has looked on the lowliness of his servant. So Mary and the devil are opposites. The devil raises himself up and is cast down. Mary lowers herself, humbles herself, and she is raised up. So God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Her offspring, of course, being Christ. Now, your translation said, they will strike at your head while you strike at their heel. Is that right? Mm -hmm. There's some ambiguity there, I think intentionally by the translators, because in the original language, it says he, he will strike at your head, which would be Christ, uh, and you will strike at his heel. Other uh, early sources say she, which would maybe be referring to Mary, but I think in the original Hebrew, we have here a masculine uh, pronoun. So this idea that he will strike your head or some translations say crush your head. So now we're talking about this battle between Christ and Satan. So this is a prophecy of a future Messiah who will come and redeem what was done by the devil here that loss of innocence, the loss of salvation would be restored by Christ. And so the, the serpent has his head crushed by Christ. And all the devil can do in return is to strike at his heel. So we can see that kind of like the, the snake biting somebody's foot. And it's like, yeah, okay, you, you were wounded, but the snake is mortally wounded, right? The snake is dead. And that, that bite on the heel is, is nothing compared to the blow that the snake faces. And this we can see as a kind of foreshadowing of the, of the death and resurrection of Christ. The, yes, Christ suffers. But in Christ's sufferings, the devil is defeated definitively. Mm -hmm. And Christ is crucified on a place called Golgotha. 
the place of the skull. So you can imagine the cross going down into that hill, which presumably looked like a skull, as being the kind of crushing of the head of the serpent. Now let's jump to the very end of the story, and we'll, we'll wrap all this up. Continuing on from verse 22. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now what if he also reaches out his hand to take fruit from the tree of life, and eats of it and lives forever? The Lord God therefore banished him from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. He expelled the man, stationing the cherubim and the fiery revolving sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so this is where the story wraps up, and it's just, it's beautiful, and it's such a punchline, because now they are cast out of the garden. Why? To keep them away from the tree of life, that tree that would give them immortality, eternal life. But if Christ, this promised seed of the woman, if he's the one that's going to redeem them, then he must be the one who reopens the way to the tree of life. And one of the beautiful things from the, from the patristic tradition from the early church is they say, see how the cross of the Lord stands revealed as the tree of life. So that actually this tree and the fruit of this tree is the cross and Christ on the cross. And so if the tree of life is the cross, then what is the fruit of the cross? What hangs on the tree but Christ's own body? And so you can see how these pieces begin to fit together where Christ says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. He is the fruit of eternal life, his body. And on the cross, on that tree of life, he gives himself for us. So now in the Eucharist, we have returned. We have come full circle so that we now have access to the fruit of the tree of life, as it were. We now have that medicine of immortality that the church fathers talked about. We are restored to right relationship with God through Christ. So all of this talk about the tree and the, and the garden and all of that stuff is this beautiful foreshadowing of Christ who gives himself for us on the cross. It's good imagery too of how our revering that we genuflect that in some churches we, we kneel to accept the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. That it's the reverse of the Adam and Eve, like plucking, like standing up. Oh boy, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's exactly right. Is that, is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil the eating that causes our death is a plucking. I reach out, I take it. Mm -hmm. No, with the Eucharist, we don't reach out and take it. It's given to us. It's this pure gift. Would pride be the first original sin? It's interesting that you ask it that way because I think a lot of people think the term original sin is talking about some kind of chronology. Like, the original sin is like the first sin. Like it's the original. It's the, it's, the, it's the first one. It's the original one. No, original sin does not refer to a specific 
like sin in the past. So the sin of Adam is not the original sin. The sin of Eve is not the original sin, nor the sin of Lucifer. Original sin refers to a state or a condition into which we are born. So we inherit original sin. That's the way to, to use that term. Is that because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we are born with this spiritual disease that we call original sin. And the way I describe it or the way I think about it is it's like a deformity of the soul, right? So like we talk about how the soul through sin becomes curved in on itself. Adam and Eve do that to themselves. They are created perfectly without any sin, but because they commit this sin, they do this serious damage to their souls and all of their children, all of their descendants are then born with this defect of this soul that is curved in on itself. So we are born, and this is important for people to, to realize and think about this, that we are born alienated from God, right? Like our natural condition because of original sin is to, as the Bible says, to have enmity with God, right? So that's why we baptize babies even, is that we are addressing immediately the problem that we all face, even the problem that we're born with. Are we descendants of Adam and Eve, literally or figuratively? That's a really good question and probably kind of the most pressing question that people have when it comes to the story of Genesis and creation and Adam and Eve and all this stuff is like, was this literal? Do we believe in evolution? I thought Catholics didn't believe in that anymore. How, how does it all fit together? Historically, the church has, going all the way back to the early church fathers like St. Augustine, they felt the liberty to interpret this story of creation with some freedom. Meaning they, Augustine, for instance, was certainly not bound to a strictly literalistic reading of the creation story. That what we have here are some figures of speech and some allegorical language and things that are not necessarily meant to be historical or certainly scientific records of things. So that is a position that is firmly within the mainstream acceptable Catholic teaching. Now, are there Catholics who believe in a literal six-day creation in the recent past? Sure, there are. And that's an acceptable position. The church doesn't say you can't believe that. But the church also leaves it open because we are not going to dogmatically define something that is a question of scientific inquiry. So... The church does not close the door to evolution or to some of these questions about biological origin and so forth. And so there's a lot of debate around these issues and there's not always clear-cut answers. What I would say, my personal take on it, is that certainly I think we should be as open as possible to what science can tell us while also recognizing, as we've seen in the past, that scientific theories change and that's why the church would be ill-advised to say the world was definitely created in this way at this time because 
even if the church were to say like, you have to believe in evolution, well, what if in the future we learn something different? So the church is not going to require you to believe in something like that. But as far as Adam and Eve go, we can see how theologically it is kind of necessary for us to say that we are descendants of these two people. This is not just myth. Because if the story of Adam and Eve is purely mythological, even if there's some allegory mixed in, okay, let's grant that. But if it's purely mythological, if we say Adam and Eve were never real people, there was never this uh, falling into sin, well, then really the rest of the biblical narrative doesn't make sense. If Adam is purely a mythological creature or a mythological person, then what do we make of the fact that the New Testament says that Christ is the new Adam? Does that mean Jesus is also a myth? Which some people would say. Certainly Catholics can't say that. Jesus is a real person. So I think we're bound to say that Adam is a real person and Eve as well. And that we really are their descendants. Now how that shakes out scientifically, and there's debate about that of if we could have you know common ancestors and so on. Um, I'm not too concerned about that. I think theologically we are bound to say that we are descendants of these people and that they committed a sin for which we suffer repercussions. To me, as I understand not only scripture, but the dogmatic teachings of the church, that to me seems like a necessary proposition. That wraps up our first episode about the Old Testament series. Mm-hmm. Well, we're working our way through. So there's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we'll pick up next time with Genesis chapter 12. We're going to jump forward to the story of Abraham. All right, cool. All right, good. If you have questions about anything that we've talked about or just anything that's on your mind related to the faith, theology, the Bible, you can send us a question at theologyontape at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. I think we recorded enough stuff I was going to ask about, like, the... Well, because you kind of mentioned earlier about the the humor in Genesis. Oh, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's just, who are these guys <laughs> writing the Bible? Like, writing the, the Genesis, I mean. We talked about how Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are kind of different, right? Mm-hmm. They're sort of two versions of a creation story. Yeah, chapter 1 seems like a poem. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, and then chapter 2 is, yeah, an allegorical... Uh-huh. Well, they're both, but... Well, but chapter two is, is more like a traditional kind of myth story, whereas chapter one is like very clearly a, like a poem, mm-hmm. the way it's structured. What's interesting is that in Genesis chapter one, God is called Elohim. In Genesis chapter two, God is called Yahweh. And that pattern, this is really interesting, that pattern of like repeated and alternating stories continues through the first five books of the Bible, where you constantly get stories told, the same story will sort of get repeated. And one is calling God Elohim and one is calling God Yahweh. And this, among other things, has led critical scholars to say that these are originally separate documents written by what we might call an Elohist and a Yahwist, (laughs) 
And there's a redactor who compiles these sources together and edits. So, so the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these books are not so much authored as they are compiled and kind of edited or redacted together, which is, I think, very fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's cool, though. It kind of gives it's, me the chills. Because it's genuinely cool that you can look at a text that's like thousands of years old and like find stuff like that.